Hi. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about some bonus content from Spotlight On. Head over to spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog and check out Bonus Tracks, the official blog of this podcast. There you'll find special material exclusive to the website, including music recommendations, artist interviews, essays, and more. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight shines on Brooklyn-based pianist and composer Danny Fox and the latest work from the Danny Fox trio, Time Took Care of It. Danny's trio, with bassist Chris Von Verst Von Beest and drummer Max Goldman, has been a working group with a consistent lineup since their founding in 2008. Their distinctive sound is a testament not only to their time together, but also their interests in chamber music, bluegrass, and rhythm and blues, all of which they integrate for their special blend of jazz. We cover Danny's background, career, and other elements of his creative life. And please stick around to the end of this episode to hear Dr. Bob, a track from the new album that we discuss in our talk. Thanks so much, and enjoy. Whereabouts in New York are you? I live in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was in I was in Carroll Gardens for the better part of 20 years. Oh, what? Maybe it's where I'd like to start off. Could you tell me a little bit about the New York you grew up in? What era, what it was like as a kid? You know, were you a city kid, a lot of freedom? What was your experience like? Definitely a city kid. Yeah, I grew up in Manhattan, Upper West Side specifically, in the 80s. It was pretty special place to grow up on the Upper West Side with there's parks so we can we had some outdoors stuff but you were still definitely in the thick of the city and got exposed pretty early on to culture and got dragged to lots of concerts that I'm thankful for now maybe at the time I wasn't as appreciative but yeah definitely got to grow up around some pretty cool things as I got into music later on, and specifically as I got into jazz, it was all right there for me to take advantage of. So started yeah. going to tons of concerts and trying to go into 21-plus clubs that I wasn't supposed to be in. And, yeah, I really got exposed to a lot of great things early on. What was your music as a kid growing up before the jazz bug bit you? What were your preferences? I have an older brother and he got into classic rock and I, but basically whatever he was into, I was into. And so that meant a lot of classic rock. And then he got into the Grateful Dead and, and fish. And so I was a little, I wouldn't say a hippie kid, but I, I got into that music through him was going to see the dead when I was in fifth grade and at the garden, I saw them at the garden. Yeah. And then I guess music that, I mean, I listened to a lot of probably whatever music was popular at the time. I definitely had a New Kids on the Block phase and <laughs> some stuff maybe it's not great to admit, but my parents played a lot of great music in the house or in car rides. And my dad was pretty big into the folk revival scene in the village. So he played us folk and bluegrass and 
we listened to a lot of Pete Seeger and Doc Watson and Flat and Scruggs and the Weavers and all kinds of stuff that maybe I didn't realize at the time what it really was. But now I, I think it's cool that we were listening to that kind of music. A lot of the common denominator, especially with the folk stuff, there's also such strong sense of melody. Like there's such a great tradition of melody in that music. I wonder if this isn't too much of a leap to the exposure to things like the Grateful Dead or Fish or even Bluegrass. Do you think that in some way prepared or trained your ear to be able to sort of rock jazz? You know, was it a gateway drug for you? And I'm saying that mainly through my perspective. I grew up exposed to and liking very similar music, and I found that that was sort of my way into jazz. Possibly. I don't know that I've ever thought about what made it an easy... Like, I, it didn't take me long to to get into jazz. I just feel like I I heard it and was immediately intrigued by it. So, yeah, it's possible. I know I can really pinpoint the moment that I got into jazz, and it was, as again, my brother had gone to a an arts camp, Interlochen Arts Camp mm-hmm. in Michigan, and he came back with all these recordings. I think I had heard of Miles, but I definitely hadn't heard these albums. And, and we went on a family trip, and he put in Milestones in the car. It was nighttime. We were driving around, and it was totally mesmerizing. From then on, that was, I think that was when I really got bit by that bug. As far as going to see groups like The Dead and Fish, and I'm, I'm not a huge jam band guy now, but there was something that I really learned about music and community and bringing people together. And that was very powerful for me to see as a kid, to see like all these people just gathering joyously to celebrate music that was exciting them, you know? Yeah. That has really resonated with me. And I, I feel like that was an important thing to see at that age, bringing a crowd in and welcoming There's a very welcoming spirit to the music and to that whole culture. And even if I'm not so involved in that now, I am definitely influenced by it. It's interesting in that it's very hard to separate the idea that, of course, there. I'll just use those two bands in particular, though it's a broader statement. It's the entertainment business, right? Like there's no getting around that. It's there. They play in arenas and stadia and there's. I'm sure there's the same infrastructure if you looked behind the scenes that you would see in maybe a Taylor Swift tour in terms of there's 18 wheelers and lights and sound and technicians and people putting up girders and all that stuff. But it's so clearly, you know, the things you just articulated transcend the idea of just mere passive entertainment. Even that's a little denigrating. I don't mean to imply like Taylor Swift's fans are certainly not passive. Right. They're having their own communal experience. Yeah. But I've always found it an interesting, I don't know, contradiction or or dichotomy that those two elements in bands like that can live so closely side by side. Mm-hmm. And what the tension must be in reconciling that sometimes. Like I, it's just fascinating from where the artist sits. And I, I wonder, given the influence it seems to have had at least spiritually or philosophically on you, do you have opportunities to manifest that in your career? I feel like more than ever in in recent performances, I'm 
feeling really grateful for all the opportunities and not taking for granted the audience and who's there to hear it, even if it's, it could be five people, it could be like a hundred people, whatever it is, I, I feel the desire to connect with the audience and to share something and to bring people in. And I feel like I'm more aware of that these days, whether it's musically or just interacting with a crowd and in kind of giving an inviting atmosphere to the show. That's something that I'm more attuned to these days, I think. Given how accomplished you are on your instrument and as a composer, could you unpack for me a little bit like what was your level of formal training and what was happening while you were doing your college work in psychology? Like where did music fit in and why aren't you a psychologist? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my path has been sort of all over the place. I never had such formal training. I had a teacher that I studied with privately and he let me study whatever I wanted. So we just did a whole mix of different kinds of music. And and I mean, in high school, I got into jazz and I studied a little bit, did some programs and went to a bunch of summer programs and played in some high school big band. And so I definitely was absorbing some training through that. And then in college, I furthered that on my own. I would do my liberal arts stuff and then on the side I was because I was in in Boston I was playing a lot of sessions and gigs with students at the conservatories like Berkeley and NEC and and it's also the time that I started to compose yeah no one was really showing me how to compose no one was I didn't have any composition classes and but just trying stuff and we had a club that would let us play like once a month or something and cultivated a bit of a scene and tried out some songs. It was a pretty formative time for me. Looking back on it, very freeing to not, no one was telling me like, that's not good or you can't do that. Or So I had to find some stuff on my own. And I say then after that, I moved back to New York and felt like I needed to deal with the piano more seriously, like how to actually play the instrument there's so much to know about playing piano and, and the whole classical tradition. I never really studied seriously classical repertoire. And so I studied with a, a teacher for probably five or six years, mainly just working on pieces. And I, I barely practiced jazz during that time. I think all that led to me having a sound that's not, you're not so easy to pinpoint because I had to grab a little from lots of different things and different people. And I didn't have like this school or this one mentor who showed me this and that. So it it led to a lot of different avenues being explored for me. Your sound, if I had to use some adjectives, one of the first that comes to mind for me is confident or assertive. I wonder as someone who was maybe less classically trained or conservatory trained, But being in that particular environment in Boston with people who were doing that all day, every day, while you were sort of moonlighting, I guess, a bit, were you always confident? Definitely not. (laughs) No. Confidence is a, that's a big topic, I think, for musicians to talk about. And it's something that I 
am always struggling with and you always feel like ah, I'm like gotten pretty good at this, but this is lacking and always wondering what you can be working. I will say that for this album, I felt a certain confidence in our group and a certain fearlessness, I would say, especially like the couple days we were recording it. This is our fourth album. And I, I know in other albums there, you'd sometimes feel like, oh, like I didn't get the right, the good take, or I have to generate some good, interesting material. Are we going to capture this cool moment, whatever? And this felt very free. Like I, I could, we could play whatever. We could try new things each time. So yeah, I, I felt more confident on this one than other ones. I think I, I can hear it. This one felt like we were taking chances and I've, I've been feeling that more and more these days. Maybe when you get older, you feel, you can just feel a little more secure and like, I'm going to play how I like to play, you know? And while you are always struggling with insecurities and like what you could do better. And I don't know if that goes away, but I think the confidence grows that you're a singular musician that you, and you do what you like to do and what you hear to do and feel good about that when you're putting it out there. Yeah. yeah. What do you attribute that to in this time around? I mean, you mentioned maybe part of it's the confidence of getting older, but I wonder also what, if any role, the stability of the lineup and the long-term nature of the relationships play. That's certainly a thing. I mean, this is our 15th year as a group. So there's wow. certainly trust that we have. We know each other. We know how we play. So there's the certain security in that, but also a willingness to try new things and know that we're going to be there for each other. I mean, when we've, we've played live, some of my favorite moments in recent times have been when something goes wrong or like someone is really going for something and gets off or like loses. I, I don't know where the downbeat is. I don't know where the, where we are in the form because we're such a close group and we know the music well, and we know each other well, the response time, the reaction time is lightning quick because we're all really tuned into each other. And I find those moments a little scary, but also thrilling to really try for things and know that the other folks are going to be right there no matter what happens. Pardon the ignorance that is behind this question, but have you either in recordings or live settings with the trio, have you ever dropped in a fourth? Dropped in a fourth, like a, a, a fourth person. I was, I was thinking you were talking about the interval. I have played some fourths. <laughs> you yes. played, played a couple uh, of fourths in your time. I would. No, we've never had um, a different, different lineup. Our friend has a, a record label called Nouvelle that he puts interesting groups together to record for a vinyl only label. And he's talked to us about recording with someone, like someone added to the trio, but we've never done it. I'm, I'd be open to it, but it's rare to have a group that has never had a sub. So it's incredible. It's uh, incredible. I mean, it makes it difficult, but it's something I feel looking over for albums and this many years, like looking back at the old pictures and just like you're seeing a group 
develop over that amount of that period of time is, is interesting. I have friends who came to see us. We just played our album release show and friends who have heard us from our first gigs and can see the development over that time. And that's a cool thing to feel like you've made some progress and learned some things and gotten better at developing a sound over that period of time. How have you maintained it? For people that aren't necessarily as close to the inner workings of a life in jazz or in, in music in general, like that's no small feat, 15 years. How? We're definitely, we're not playing like tons every year. I think maybe if we had like a rigorous touring schedule, there might, it might be more difficult. But we've all just committed to being in this group and Max and Chris have always been game to work on music together and just keep forging along. There are conflicts like with anything, any relationship there, it's not smooth all the time, but in a general working relationship, we all work well together, play well together. And yeah, I'm not sure what the secret is. One of the things that I I read that might've been in Max's bio blurb, the journalist or someone called him uh, as a player, beautifully melodic, even pianistic. And given that it seems as though humor plays a bit of a role in the relationship between you all, that if you get a particular kick out of the idea that the highest compliment he can be given yeah. is that he's pianistic. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, yeah, I didn't even <laughs> think about that, but I do enjoy that. Yeah, he, he definitely approaches the group with a broad palette of, of what he can contribute in terms of the sound he's adding to these songs. Like it's, he's never just like, well, I'll just play this beat and then we'll improvise. And he likes to think about parts and sound and, and he's a versatile drummer. He plays a lot of free jazz, but he also, he played in like a disco electronica band and, and with singer songwriters. And I always find it exciting how those, all these things get applied to our pieces. He can play like he's playing in a classical percussion section for a certain part of a piece, or then the next thing he's playing like he's Clyde Stubblefield and with James Brown. It's, it's, he can draw from anything, which I think is a special talent to, to bring to the group. Yeah. In a recent conversation, I was talking to the guitarist Dominic Miller, who um, he's been in Sting's band for over 30 years now, but he does a lot of session work in addition to having his own instrumental solo career. He made the point several different ways that the sort of outside work that he does or the session work and the other things he does contribute dramatically to his sort of day job with Sting and that it's not a, it's not a requirement of his job. You know, it's not an explicit requirement, but it's something that's highly valued is the idea that he playing different genres, different styles, but also interacting with other producers, engineers, just being in other environments. Like there's so many different aspects of walking into a studio or onto a stage. There's so many things to learn, not just from Mm -hmm. the other players. And I I thought that was, that really struck me. And it, it seems very relevant to what you just said about Max. Yeah, I think about that a lot. And in the last five, 10 years, I've played in a wider variety of settings and different styles and it's really had a big impact on our music and my playing in general. I love how that happens when 
you don't necessarily try to force something to change. Like in your playing, you just, by being open to new things, new people, learning from your colleagues and new recordings you're hearing or styles you get the chance to play and then they filter into your improvising and your composing. And I find that fascinating just to see what shows up because it's bound to, I mean, if you're spending time with a certain genre or you're playing a lot of gigs in it, you're, it makes sense that it will, when you're sitting down to write, something's going to pop up that's from that. And I've been finding that a lot. And on this album there, I can point to like even certain tunes where that's because I was listening to a lot of Donny Hathaway and that's why I think that's probably why that came out. I don't think I ever set out to write something like, I'm going to write a bluegrass style song because I'm been, I've been transcribing a lot of bluegrass songs and solos and stuff. It just, you start writing and there it is somehow yeah. it's, it's there or in a, in you're improvising and like you find yourself playing some Doc Watson style run. If it's cause you've been engaging with that and it's showing up. Sometimes it's buried deep and sometimes it's just right beneath the surface. Right. We'll be back with more spotlight on right after this break. Bonus tracks is the official blog of spotlight on online at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. And now, back to Spotlight On. To look under the hood a little bit of the new album, can you talk to me a little bit about the title? Time Took Care of It. What was the it? The original impetus for that is Max's father. It was a saying that Max's father used to have. Mm. We joke about it. It's something he would say when he didn't want to go to a social obligation, like a dinner party or a wedding family event. Max would ask him, how was that thing, dad? And he would say, yeah, time took care of it. Like it's over. Everything. I got through it. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a time heal, heals all wounds variation. Maybe I enjoyed that. And so Max's dad passed and we named it honor of him. I was thinking about a title for the album and it seemed to fit also in what we were just talking about in terms of being a group for this long and they're just not being a substitute for time spent with people developing something and seeing how it grows over time. So the, it seemed to work out. I originally named the song that because Max's dad said that somewhat cynical. <laughs> statement but i yeah i think it could you can look at it also as a appreciating the development of something over time now we've been getting into gardening over here and or at least my mm. wife is into gardening and just that patiently kind of waiting for something to take its course and patience is another a thing that i think a lot about because you definitely need patience in music in a career in music and i feel that we've been pretty patient in developing the group over the years, like letting things develop organically. Were there ever times in the group's development where you felt like you couldn't manifest what the vision was? Like you were hearing it one way and you guys couldn't get there yet? Maybe you weren't ready yet as an ensemble or like, how, how do you balance the idea of patience with 
any urgency you feel as an artist? There were plenty of times where I felt we were trying for something, but it wasn't quite there yet. Or maybe I thought it was there and then we like would hear something back and it wasn't quite there's there definitely times of doubt. But I think in terms of keeping the group together and committing to this group, we had patience that these ideas would get stronger over time. I like to joke about the our first album was put out on a label and the label owner he was interested in it, but he was going back and forth with me and wasn't sure if he wanted to put it out. And he said, I think you have a better album in you. Wow. I thought that was a funny thing to say because it was our first album. I was thinking, of course we have a better album. And this is, we're just getting going, you know. I felt excited about what we were putting forth at that time, but I, I knew there was more to, to work on. There's always more to work on. It's funny to think, of, to hear the album, this album, and know like, yeah, of course he was right. I think this was our strongest album. I felt like we had something new that we were starting to offer, but I, I also was hopeful that it could grow over time. I feel pretty good about this album being an upward progression. It's funny to hear that comment because I, the first thing that struck me when you said it was, I guess, sort of overlaying time. Did he mean you have a better album in you right now? Or was he agreeing with you and saying, you know what, you guys have better albums coming? It's a fascinating comment. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I think I I probably responded with silence. I don't know if I knew what you had, to You hadn't learned grace? Yeah. <laughs> Something else that strikes me about the discography, and I want to say it in a way that's not offensive in any way, so pardon me in advance. It strikes me as you guys take your time. And... I wonder what's that a function of? Is it being working musicians? Is it your compositional process? Could you talk about like the role of time in your output at all? Well, first of all, it takes, I mean, making recordings is it takes like money and planning. And so it's hard to do that a lot. But in terms of a slower development, it takes me time to write compositions. I have always been like a slow writer even in like in words like high school and college like writing papers and i was someone that would agonize over each sentence and then by the time it was i was done i would just hit print because i had already done so much i don't know i'm not someone who just generates a ton of material and then whittles down and i my process is fairly slow so i often will work on a piece for a month or two the same piece, just kind of chipping away each day. And I guess we've done four albums. It's like a few years for each one. It's a combination of the writing process being slow and then also us taking our time and workshopping the pieces and playing gigs and figuring out what adjustments we want to make. And it's very rare that a piece would just be ready to go. Like... I write it and then we play it and it's okay, great. Like it's been a lot of tinkering. Maybe in the early days I was more defensive or precious about the pieces and the sections. And over time I've, I really welcome the other guys 
saying, oh, let's get rid of this whole section, does nothing for me. I'd be like, great. I think it's cool to hear the other people putting their imprint on it. And that stuff takes time, you know, to find the right thing. And not that it can't still change. Sometimes we, even the stuff we just recorded, we have made little adjustments or try to do new things on a certain section or thing that I, I really recorded. I felt we're like, oh, we have to play this. I have to play this part on this song. And now I don't play it at all because I want to play something else. And all that takes some patience and some time to let it fully unfold. Based on what you just said, is it reasonably true then that when you guys show up for a date or show up for a session, it's not the first time the other two in the trio have seen and heard that music? You, you've been workshopping it. You generally have played around with it live or in rehearsals. Yeah, for a recording. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much every recording, like we know what's going on. We've been playing this, the pieces and we've workshopped them and... Obviously in jazz, there's, there are some classic albums that have been made where people didn't see the, or hear the music. That's sort of the mythology, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of kind of blue, like people just bringing something in that day and there's a certain freshness and with our group, there's probably cause there's a lot of written material. So we want to be able to execute the music well, but. I personally really like the mix of a very well-oiled unit and everyone knowing the music to play the parts really well, but within that to have a, a lot of freedom. I like that mix of really tight ensemble playing and parts that can be your little sections that can go anywhere in the little like nooks and crannies. And even with some of the composed material to to play it in a fresh way i feel like we we get a lot of freedom from knowing the music really well i mean i played a gig last night with another group that i'm i'm in and i know all the music by heart and we played these songs a lot and it allows for some really cool moments because you're not worrying what where does it go next or what what's the chord here you just you can go for interesting things if you're a tight ensemble. So, yeah. Even as, as an individual player, I feel like that's very prevalent in, I was going to say the jazz tradition, but really in improvised music, when the players are so technically proficient and can run scales and do all those things, and then they can almost set that aside. It's like the innate ability is just, it's so there between the hands and the fingers and the toes that, they can transcend the technique and just be, it's a really fascinating part of the process of improvised music. I agree. I have heard people that are technically gifted and play all kinds of stuff on the instrument. And sometimes it bores me to tears because it feels just like a display of technique or like I worked out so I can do this. And I would prefer to hear something that moves me and that, or that's something that's surprising and after be like, oh, wow, okay, that took some technique to, to play that. Or I don't want to be listening and say, wow, that's impressed. That's really impressive. You know? Yeah. I want to, I want to hear stuff that's like, really like gets me in a visceral way. That's not 
just like flashy or technical. I wanted to ask you a couple more things about the new project. Could you talk to me a little bit about the role of song titles? It's something I like to ask instrumental musicians, regardless of genre, because the I get such an interesting range of responses from people. And I wonder what role titles play in your music and when they get assigned to a song. Yeah, titles for me are, I like to joke around a lot. So they're often somewhat jokey. They don't always have to do with the actual sound of the piece. I think for our music, which, you know, it doesn't sound jokey. I mean, I think the music is playful, but I don't think it sounds like comical. But I enjoy that our titles are, and the stories that go with them show that we don't really, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Like the music may have a serious sound at times or introspective, but it's a little lighthearted. Like it's more, it speaks of a playful approach. I called one of the songs on the album, probably the most serious sounding song on the album. I called Chive Tai, which is where we all did this gig in a hotel in Switzerland. And the food was very formal and also very bad. They would always serve a lot of the dishes they would serve with this garnish where they wrap a scallion or chive around string beans. Like you'd see at a banquet or a wedding, sometimes they'll put like the mesh cover on the lemon and it's like, it's very old school. And we just always joked about it. And I think I wrote that piece when I was at this hotel, like at this gig. And, you know, I didn't think oh, this is the perfect summation of this sound. I just was, it was the time and I thought it was funny. And that was that. Is that funnier than slow ham? <laughs> <laughs> slow ham is, yeah, slow ham was another, it's another example of not being too precious with anything like I was recording voice memos in terms of your question about when I assign a, a title or I often record whatever I'm working on the day I'll record it on my voice memo and do a shorthand title so I can remember and so for this one I, I wrote slow jam and I joke that my phone must have been aware of my 13 years of Orthodox Jewish schooling because it kept changing it to ham. <laughs> um, so that's what the tune became, slow ham. Just, that's it, like slow jam, slow ham. And it works. Like I definitely don't agonize over tune names. I think it's whatever is occurring to me or, or related to the time of writing it. Or All right, well, one more, and then I'll leave this line of inquiry alone. Who's Dr. Bob? Dr. Bob is, is my, uh, my old dentist. He is, uh, yeah, that piece, I had just had a tooth pulled. I actually haven't even told him. This is our, our family dentist who I've been describing him as the world's greatest dentist. We just, we all loved him and he retired during COVID and threw us for a loop. Yeah. So I named it after him. I haven't even I haven't even told him. I haven't sent it to him. All right. So I want to make sure we don't overlook the fact that you paired this album with a cookbook. I've seen you talk about that a little bit in other places, but talk to me about the blending of those two loves of yours. People always have, over the years, I joke about it a lot that there's always someone 
family friend or someone who says, you should open, they know I like to cook. They say, you should open a jazz club restaurant. Okay. It's just something that's the two things that fail the most. Right. That's <laughs> just come up a lot. And I was like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I've gotten, there's a funny cookbook of jazz musicians sharing recipes. It's called jazz cooks. I've gotten that as a gift three times. Other than joking about it, I've never really considered putting them together or considering the connections and, but they have always been intermingled for me. Like I'm always listening to music when I'm cooking and often I like cooking after a rehearsal, cooking for bandmates or like sharing a meal with friends. And I've played many gigs where the whole set break is people talking about pizza techniques or Mapo tofu recipes or they're two of the greatest things. Music and food is, I always say like those are, if I have those things, I'm usually pretty happy. You get music yeah. and good food. And a, fr a friend had suggested, oh, you could do like a cooking videos or you do pairings with the song. Then I thought about it and I thought, oh, maybe I like to write. I like to write words and just thought that would be a, a fun idea to try and come up with pairing and write stories about the songs and just turned into a whole thing. My, my wife did, she did the illustrations and had a friend who is a great designer, turn it into fairly professionals way more than I thought was going to be. I thought I would just scribble out some stuff and go to Staples, but it turned into a, a nice project. Yeah. Is the idea of not necessarily saying, you know, now every album comes with a book or anything along those lines, but the idea of extending the art and the presentation of the art, like, is that of interest to you now? Yeah. I really enjoyed exploring related fields or I worked really hard on that cookbook. I was like every night writing, trying to write and edit. And I did enjoy exploring like a new avenue like that. So I could see for a future album trying to maybe not the same, maybe not another cookbook, but something, something else. And for this album, I've done all kinds of crazy stuff. Like one thing we haven't put out yet, but a friend of a friend who's a computer science professor, I found out that he did custom player piano rolls. Oh, wow. And so over a couple of years, I was going back and forth and I had this idea for one of our songs, which is sort of a bluegrassy influence tune. I thought that would be a cool one to hear on a player piano. And he did it. He made a roll. I sent him like a MIDI track and got to hear this piece played on a 1910 player piano. And so we made a video of it and it's exciting to just try weird thing that's a lot of fun yeah that's neat for this album i've done i made an animation video i i don't know how to do that but i used some budget program and spent a lot of time and yeah i enjoyed trying new things related to it well before i let you go i think i, I need you to weigh in on um you know you're in new york you're in brooklyn you're in the place where my heart spends a lot of time talk to me about the state of pizza State of pizza. Yeah, what's going uh, on with pizza? Well, wow, it's interesting you say that because our local 
pizza place that we've been enjoying just abruptly said that yesterday was the last day that they were going to serve pizza. So. Who was it? Would it? Would I know who it is? No, it's a, it's a like a pop up pizza place in in our neighborhood. It's not one of the famous. Um, well, that's the thing, though, right? Every every block or every six block radius, there's there's a good slice place. That's what I miss. But anyway, I, I well, Seattle I is supposed to have great pizza these days, right? My son and I talk about this a lot. We've lost perspective as to whether it's good pizza or good enough pizza. I see. I see. I think anybody from the East Coast or the Northeast would understand that. You know, it's like you're going to go native at some point because you need pizza. <laughs> right. Honestly, the pizza style that I've had more in the last, in recent times is um, New Haven pizza. That's where I'm from. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm from the world capital of pizza. Yeah, I'm modern so is my place. Oh, modern. modern. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who lived right across the street from modern, so we used to go there years ago. But um, the place that I've been really enjoying over the last like five or so years of this parties in West Haven. Really? Yeah. It's not coal oven, but they've been around many years and they're, they don't have the lines and they're just on like a quiet residential block. But I absolutely love the vibe of that place and the pizza is really solid and they had make a fresh clam pie. I think mm. it's better than like Sally's and Pepe's and because they use like whole clams and they make their own sausage. And so that place is, Beautiful. is kind Beautiful. of my happy place. In fact, we stopped there on the way to a trio. We played a trio gig in Providence and Chris and I stopped for zoo parties on the way. Yeah. I tell you, it's, it's an hour and a half on the Metro North. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, I play in a group. I play in a group. My friend Luca Benedetti is a great guitarist. We spent like many gigs talking about New Haven pizza and just pizza in general. And we would always joke about doing a tour in New Haven just so we could go eat pizza. And so finally, after a lot of joking, we booked a gig at 10 p.m. at some not so ideal club. And we hit three or four pizza places. And our bassist wife said, well, why don't you guys just go eat pizza? Like, why would you have to book a gig? And you don't understand the gig was like nothing special but we had that idea so we you know it basically was a pizza tour with a little gig through yeah yeah we we used to do blind taste testings every couple of years we'd we'd go to modern sally's and pepe and by the time we actually got it all together because you can't just go get it right it's like each one was a process right. to get like the pizza would all right. be cold and and by the way instantly identifiable it's not like you couldn't yeah. tell who it's yeah <laughs> But it's the it's the whole thing. You got to you got like otherwise you're just going and eating pizza. Like I like the idea you planned this tour. Yeah. That's what guys do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Danny Fox, and as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of Twenty Three Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Qburn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at www.spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.
And now, here's the Danny Fox Trio with Dr. Bob, taken from their new album, Time Took Care of It. 